Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 19th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Malta's Roberta Metzola of the centre-right European People's Party, the EPP, has been elected as the President of the European Parliament. Metzola is the youngest MEP to hold this post. Yesterday, she dedicated part of her acceptance speech to Irish murder victim, Ashling Murphy. I know I stand on the shoulder of giants, the shoulders of Simon Weil, Auschwitz inmate 78651, who tore off the shackles of that painful part of our European history to blaze a path through ceilings as the first woman to be European Parliament president. The shoulders of the millions of nameless women who endured so much and who fought for us to have the opportunities that they were never afforded. The shoulders of Ashling, Paulina, and all the other women whose lives have already been stolen this year. The shoulders of Europe's displaced and the disappeared. On all those who fought and suffered under totalitarianism and sacrificed everything for Europe. On the shoulders of all those who believed and who believe still. We stand here thanks to them. We stand here for them. Europe is back. Europe is the future. Ashling Murphy was recognised in Brussels yesterday by the incoming President Roberta Metzola in Mount Bolas County Offaly. Ashley was remembered in St Bridget's Church where her funeral mass took place. I will drone and your wife Sabina and Tishok Neil Martin on Fubble Day. You are all very welcome to this family of faith to this place named after St. Bridget and she was a person of faith of courage of wisdom and we welcome all who join online with all the media because everywhere 
throughout the world. We are united in faith, we're united in grief. And indeed, in every school in our country, there is a special space this day. Ashling's death has been very hard for people to accept, but none more so than her loving family. Ashling's parents, Ray and Kathleen, her brother Cochal, her sister Amy, her boyfriend Ryan, and the whole extended family. We must let that gentle breeze enfold us and wrap us and comfort every single one of us. We should not wait for tragedy to bring out the great goodness we have all shared and witnessed. We are challenged to share that goodness with each other every single day. Ashleen's life has been taken from her. Her family shared the symbols of a life that ended prematurely. So we have a musical instrument representing her great love of music and how she shared it with so many and taught so many. We have a family photograph. Family was everything. And we have a jersey from Kilcormick Kilohe, a jersey she wore with pride and with great glee. And we have a hurl for that sport she loved and played so well. Kamogi. Her great love and vocation as teacher, where she imparted so much knowledge and love to so many children. Now I invite Ashling's godparents. They were the ones who have guided her on that journey of faith, along with her parents, Ray and Kathleen. So Sean, her uncle, and Regina, her aunt, Place these symbols of our faith, faith that was very important and very much treasured and very much practised by Ashling in the presence of her family. Father Michael Mead celebrated the funeral mass. We gather to support by our prayer, by our presence, those whose darkness is indeed very deep, those whose pain is raw, and fears. Ashley's parents, Kathleen and Ray, with Cahill and Amy, with Ryan, you all have been robbed of a very and most precious gift. A gift that only gave joy, that only gave love, that only gave fun and laughter to many, many, many beyond yourselves, beyond the bounds of your own home. A family bereaved, a nation in shock. Do not be afraid, were the words from the angel. These are words for every single one of us who have walked with, who have gathered in many places, in vigils, who gather today in whatever space we may be in. Let us hear those words. Let us not be afraid to pray for one another, 
Let us not be afraid to care for one another. Let us not be afraid to make change happen, to make it be a reality, to make change for what is only good. The many issues raised in many ways and by many voices since this horrible act of violence invaded all our lives. Will we pray those issues and those voices will continue to evolve, will continue to challenge every single one of us to make that change that we all need so much. Not just to talk about it, but to give it flesh, to give and show respect. The Bishop of Meath, Thomas Dinehan, reflected on the impact that Ashling's brutal murder has had on so many people. The crime, I think, has also asked questions of ourselves and of our society. It has questioned our attitudes and particularly our attitudes towards women. And it has questioned, too, our values and our morality. Whether these questions will be addressed or passed over remains to be seen. It's up to ourselves. But we cannot allow such violence and disregard for both human life and bodily integrity to take root in our time and culture. Pope Francis, in his homily for New Year's Day just two weeks ago, said that violence against women is an insult to God. We all know that no individual should die like Ashling, and no family should suffer like Ashlings are now. Respect is an old-fashioned word, but it is an important one. Respect was missing last Wednesday, but it has re-emerged here, I think, all the stronger. Let us respect each other. At the graveside, the Murphy family remembered their beloved Ashling. Ashling was born to a tight-knit family where love was freely given and in turn Ashling learned to express freely that love. Her parents, Ray and Kathleen, watched with pride their youngest grow to the beautiful, confident and vibrant young woman who lived and loved life to the full. She was educated at Colonarney National School the Sacred Heart Tullamore, and completed her education only in October at the Mary Immaculate College in Limerick. As often happens in rural communities, her tutors and mentors she had as a child became her colleagues at Durham National School where she began teaching first class. Teaching came naturally to Ashley as she had been teaching both tin whistle and fiddle at Valley by Coltis. Her family home was filled with traditional music every weekend as children learned to love what Ashling loved. With her sister and best friend Amy, they happily put together many group of keol and traditional bands to compete at county, provisional and at flat in the hair. When asked, she readily gave her her time to play her fiddle at St. Bridget's Church where she was baptised and received her Holy Communion. Her other passion was camogie. Her involvement at junior and senior level was at the core of who she was. A team player and faithful to her teammates and her beloved Kilcormer Kilhoy Club. And also to the teams of the Sacred Heart where she took part. 
So much has been written about Ashleen, but I want to say who she really was. God, she loves fashion. <laughs> when another purchase arrived at the family home, she would say to Cahill and Amy, I love clothes, but my wardrobe won't close. <laughs> she loved nature and she loved animals. Sure. But she hated having to pull tires up on the silage pit. It was just not what her princess did. Her smile would light up any room and she would come bounding in with a plop into a recliner seat, have a cup of tea ready and catch up on all the ska. Ashley, at 23 years, was within her very large family, the baby to her older cousins, but yet a role model to her younger cousins. She loved socialising, and she never confined herself to any particular norm, but was a friend to all who had the pleasure of knowing her. Her partner of five years' reign was the love of her life together, and they had a clear vision of their future. Ryan's family was like her second home and Killorn Parish was to be where they built their lives together. But Ryan was under no illusion. The KK jersey would be her colours. <laughs> she was everything you could hope for in the young woman and she will never be out of our hearts. We will cherish her memory and keep alive her legacy and achievements in her short life. Ryan Casey has been Ashling's boyfriend for the last five years. <laughs> It's simply not possible to explain what Ashley meant to myself or her family and friends in these few brief words. All I'd like to say in this moment in time is that Ashley was, in fact, her shining light. She loved her mum, Kathleen, her father, Ray, her big sister, Amy, and her big brother, Carl. And all of her family and friends so much. She was always there, always willing to help anybody, anywhere, at any time. And always put herself last. She had so many qualities and talents which all combined to make her an incredible, loving and beautiful person. We all were so lucky to know and love to spend as much time with as possible. Ashley was so much more to me than a girlfriend. She was my soulmate. She is my soulmate. She will always be my soulmate. <laughs> She's the greatest love of my life. I will cherish... I will cherish... the last five years we spent together my entire life. Oh, I hope that someday, God willing, we can be reunited once more and continue the great plans we had made for each other. Goodbye for now, but not forever, darling. <laughs> And she will live on in all of our hearts and memories. Much has been said about Ashling Murphy. Her name will be remembered for many years to come. The best hope is she will be remembered as a symbol of how violence against women can come to an end. But those who knew and loved Ashling Murphy will remember her in better times. Hi, my name is Ashling Murphy. I'm from Blue Ball in County Offaly and I'm a member of Valley Boy branch of Kyotis. 
Thanks a million to the very hardworking committee members of Tullamore Tradfest who have kindly asked me to play a few tunes for you this evening. I'm going to start off with a set of reels. Um, the first one is Sergeant Earl's Dream and the second is The White Fairy. Um, I got both these tunes from a lovely album by Ryan Malloy and Fergal Scattle over the lockdown. <laughs> Hope you enjoy. Now, the advisory group on planning for state exams is uh, to meet today. Amongst its considerations will be what to do about uh, the Leaving Cert to go ahead with uh, traditional exams or a hybrid of uh, the exams uh, or the option of teacher-assessed grades. Uh, uh, To coincide uh, with uh, that meeting, uh, students are protesting around the country. Protests will be held in Carlow, in Wexford, in Waterford and at the Dáil today at two o'clock. As we speak, a protest is underway in Blanchardstown and we can go there now to talk to one of the organisers. Marty Pollock is on the line. Good morning, Marty, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Tell us about your protest and what you're hoping to achieve. Hi, good morning. Um, So you can probably hear the protest behind me now. Um, We're currently chanting and, you know, getting the hype up. Um, Well, our main... What we want to achieve is, well, clarity on the situation, first of all. That's the most important thing because we've been in the dark for far too long. I mean, it should probably have been spotted by now what is going on with the Leaving Cert. Um, but we also think that the current adjustments that have been made to the Leaving Cert are not enough and we deserve better than that. And if that means that there is further adjustments to be made to the Leaving Cert by the government, then we would love that. Um, if the, that means a hybrid Leaving Cert 2022 we would also love that. I mean, ultimately, we believe that a traditional Leaving Cert cannot go ahead as it's planned and students deserve better. Right. Are you surprised or disappointed that your teachers think otherwise and the teachers' unions think otherwise? Um, well, personally, from at least talking to my teachers, our teachers don't really think otherwise. Um, not everyone is for uh, the hybrid Leaving Cert, but they're, not, but they're also against a traditional Leaving Cert going ahead. So... Um, from what I know, the teachers' unions did not consult with teachers on um, the, the, you know, the decision that they made that they want, they want the traditional leaving cert to go ahead because most of the teachers I know are in support of the students um, and in support of the strikes and the protests as well. Okay, you're uh, different in the class of uh, 22, aren't you, than the class of uh, 21 because uh, you didn't sit a formal junior CERTA exam and you don't have uh, those results uh, that teachers could use as part of their assessment. Um, so only about 25% of students didn't sit the junior CERT. Um, I did because I did TY and so did a majority of the people that I know. Um, we know that that means that there's going to be further complications to do with the hybrid leaving search. But, um, you know, they're not stuff that can't be solved and they're fixable issues. That's what we believe. Okay, uh, some students would have sat them and some uh, wouldn't have. uh, And it depends on who did transition year and who didn't. Yes. Okay, Uh, but is that a level playing field then, to take that approach with all students? Um, Well, you know, there is a lot of... That is the 25% of students that didn't sit 
the junior show, which means they've never sat a, a state exam, which means, you know, they don't know what to expect when going into a leaving cert. And that just furthermore proves their point that we shouldn't have to sit um, a traditional leaving cert. Obviously, the hybrid model would not be fair for everybody, and we completely understand that. Um, but there is no perfect solution. And, you know, that's... You know what I mean? <laughs> mm, yeah, I do. I do. It's a very hard time for you and all of the leaving cert students. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, would you be happy if they came out and said, "Look, we've made our decision, and it's not the decision that you want, but at least you'd know where you stood, uh, and they were to go ahead with traditional exams." Um, we would not be happy if traditional exams were to go ahead. If they said no to the hybrid leaving cert, but decided to make further adjustments and um, take into consideration our circumstances and adjust the leaving cert in consideration with our circumstances, then we would be happy. But if they went ahead and said, sorry, no, you're just going to have to do the traditional leaving cert, we would continue to campaign as we are. Okay, and I don't think you're just speaking for yourself, Marty, are you? Or or for the people who are protesting with you at the five different locations today, because uh, the Students' Union has a a survey and the vast majority of students would like a hybrid leaving cert this year. Yeah, exactly. Like, the survey actually had more people than any other year participating in it, just proving the point that over 60, what is it, 68% of students want a hybrid model, and that doesn't count the students that put on the survey that they don't want the traditional leaving sort of to go ahead, but, you know, they aren't fully for the hybrid model either. Okay, and do you have uh, support from principals and opposition politicians as well, I think? Yeah, we do. So the NAPD and the... Um, a lot of politicians from Sinn Féin, from Labour, um, from, you know, parties across Ireland have are in support of what we're doing. Mm, OK. Uh, you're taking your case uh, to the Minister. Uh, would you like Norma Foley uh, to come out a- and meet with you? Um, well, yeah, ultimately that would be a good thing. I mean, I think students should be listened to and if that is between a meeting with the ISSU and Norma Foley or students, her coming out to talk to students directly. Um, either way, students, you know, deserve to have a voice and speak and be heard by Norma. Okay, well, uh, usually when people come on the radio, Marty, uh, somebody belonging to the government is sitting down, writing down what you're saying, and uh, they could pass on a, a transcript of what you've said today on to the Minister. Uh, what would you like to say to her? Um, well, the main thing is, please listen to us and understand the reason for why we're protesting and why, you know, we're talking about this. It isn't just because we don't want to sit our leaving cert. It's because we've taken into consideration everything that has happened over the past two years and we just haven't done enough to be able to sit a traditional leaving cert. Okay, well, thanks for talking to us today, Marty, uh, and uh, I'm sure people will notice your protests here, there and uh, around the five locations throughout the day uh, and at two o'clock at the Dáil this afternoon. Thanks, as I say. Marty Pollock is one of uh, the organisers of uh, those protests being held by students around the country today. Now, as you know, there's a a lot of confidence uh, that we're on our way out of the current set of restrictions. There's a, a lot of room for optimism about how we're getting on top of coronavirus and uh, that perhaps uh, we can look forward to, to a different life with COVID-19. That seems to be the view here. Uh, to some extent, it's the view of the World Health Organization. In some countries, cases seem to have peaked, which gives hope that the worst of this latest wave is done with, but no country is out of the woods yet. I remain particularly concerned 
about many countries that have low vaccination rates, as people are many times more at risk of severe illness and death if they're unvaccinated. Omicron may be less severe, on average, of course, but the narrative that it is mild disease is misleading, hurts the overall response, and costs more lives. Make no mistake, Omicron is causing hospitalizations and deaths, and even the less severe cases are inundating health facilities. The virus is circulating far too intensely with many still vulnerable. For many countries, the next few weeks remain really critical for health workers and health systems. I urge everyone to do their best to reduce risk of infection so that you can help take pressure off the system. Now is not the time to give up and wave the white flag. And everyone is urged to get vaccinated. At a time of Omicron, it remains more important than ever to get vaccines to the unvaccinated. Vaccines may be less effective at preventing infection and transmission of Omicron than they were for previous variants. But they still are exceptionally good at preventing serious disease and death. This is key to protecting hospitals from becoming overwhelmed. Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus of the World Health Organization speaking in Geneva yesterday. Much room for hope, especially in countries uh, like Ireland where there's such a high rate of vaccination and we're getting on top of uh, this current wave of Omicron. Uh, But, and there's always a but with coronavirus, that may not be the end of the pandemic. This pandemic is nowhere near over and with the incredible growth of Omicron globally, New variants are likely to emerge. Oh dear. That's uh, Dr. Tedros in Geneva. Michael Reed on LMFM. In 2016, social workers removed five children from their family home and placed them in foster homes. Yesterday, uh, five members of uh, the same family were handed down very hefty sentences. So that includes uh, the mother and father of uh, those children. Uh, who engaged in what was described as the most awful sexual abuse, sexual exploitation and willful neglect of the three eldest children. Let's speak uh, to our course reporter, Frank Graney, who's on uh, the line. A very good morning to you and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Dreadful, dreadful abuse in all of this and very serious sentences handed down as a result, Frank. That, that's right and, and rightly so. I feel like I'm always saying this on your show, Michael, but this... Um really was one of the most disturbing, most distressing cases that I have covered in my time down the Central Criminal Court. And your listeners should be warned that some of the details, I mean, I couldn't even go into the level of detail that was given during the trial was just horrendous. There's actually a reporting restriction in place in relation to the uh, sexual conduct of the accused people. Um, We can't talk about some of the details in relation to that. And it's fair to say that we wouldn't anyway. It's just far Mm. too graphic. Charges of the absolute worst sexual abuse, sexual exploitation and neglect brought against uh, the parents of 
the five children, their two uncles and an aunt. Uh, there was a 10-week trial held before the Central Criminal Court. It was held in Croke Park to allow for a social distancing and they were ultimately found guilty of most of the charges they faced. They were handed sentences yesterday. The father of the children got 15 years and their mother got nine years. Uh, two uncles who stood trial for various offences related to this case got 15 years each and an aunt of the children uh, got three years the judge described it as an extremely disturbing case. He commended the foster parents for the enormous improvement seen in the kids uh, since they were taken into care back in 2016. He noted uh, that there was some evidence uh, of intellectual difficulties given on behalf of the accused, but he said that he was satisfied that they knew what they were doing and that they knew that what they were doing was wrong. The sexual abuse was obviously at uh, the higher end of uh, the scale given the three 15-year sentences for the men, the father and two uncles and the nine-year sentence for the mother and the three-year sentence then for the other aunt. Uh, but the neglect of these children was incredible in itself, wasn't it? It really was. And a lot of the witnesses that gave evidence would have spoken to the state of the house, the state of the children, um, social workers, medical professionals and teachers would have given evidence during this difficult trial. Um, the judge said yesterday in his, in his remarks at the sentencing that the house was described to him as filthy. Uh, the children were filthy. They didn't know how to use cutlery. They didn't know how to use toilet roll. They didn't know how to wash themselves. One of the social workers, I remember, shared a very striking image with us during the trial when she gave her evidence. She said that when she visited the house on one occasion, she found just one bar of soap in the house. One bar of soap for a family of seven. No shower gels, no shampoos, no toothbrushes, no toilet roll. Uh, she said there were stains on the walls uh, that were painted over. Um, there was mouldy food all over the place. Rubbish was strewn all over the house. Uh, they had problems with rodents getting in. Uh, the mother, when she was asked about that, blamed the dodgy front door for it. But it's fair to say that, you know, they would have got in by any means. Such was the lure of the bounty that lay within rotten food everywhere, rubbish strewn all over the place. Uh, this social worker found nothing in the house to entertain the young kids apart from a few broken toys. Mm. Um, we heard that there were numerous outbreaks of scabies in the house at various points. They were malnourished, often beaten, completely starved of love and attention. Uh, they had lice, unexplained marks and scarring to their bodies. Uh, they were described during the trial as over-compliant when they were taken into care, anxious and extremely sexualized. And that's how the sexual offending was first brought to uh, the state authorities' attention. It was after they were brought into care, after Tusa had yeah. expressed serious concern about the neglect of the children, and they expressed then these highly sexualised um, behaviour when they were taken into care, and Gardaí were alerted at that point. All right. Uh the 10-year-old, uh, as he was in 2017, went missing from his foster home uh, and that brought uh, to light uh, an awful lot of uh, the problems, uh, as I understand it, and uh, they started to confide uh, in uh, their foster parents and explain or try to tell them what had happened, uh, which may have explained some of the behaviour because uh, these were by no means what you would describe as children who were behaving normally. Oh, absolutely not. And all of the foster parents that gave evidence um, during the trial, they all described how difficult the children were to manage when uh, they first moved in. Um, you know, they deserve great credit and they were commended yesterday for the work that they have, 
have given the children. They said they'd never seen children in such a state. The, the biggest issue initially was their complete lack of awareness when it came to hygiene. They didn't know how to wash themselves. The boys had never been to get their hair cut. Um, they expressed huge surprise, the children did, over having a choice of food in a kitchen. Um, clearly that was something that wasn't available to them where they lived with their parents. Um, they used to hide the food for fear of it being taken away. They didn't know how to show affection. They didn't know how to hug or kiss. Uh, the youngest we heard would just cry silently if there was something uh, up with him. He used to wet the bed, but he'd never call out for help. I thought that was particularly poignant. You know, it was obvious that his calls beforehand, if he ever made them, uh, went unanswered. Um, we also heard that the parents had a sixth child after the kids were taken into care. And this was described as a concealed pregnancy. The father didn't even know uh, that his wife was pregnant. Uh, he couldn't even remember what name uh, she gave uh, the child. And we heard that that child uh, was also taken into care. N- none of the charges, uh, I shall point out, related to this uh, sixth child. So the foster parents did... I suppose through conversations, particularly with the eldest boy, that was when that was when the the sexual allegations were first made. Mm. But I, but I think one thing that's that's important to note as well is just the time the time that it took for for all of this for for actions to be taken. And um, you know, like the children were taken into care in 2016, but the family first came to the attention of Tusa five years beforehand, and and that was something that one of the social workers was pressed on during the trial. They tried as best they could to explain how long this process takes. You know, there will be six months between case conferences because plans need to be made. And, you know, they try to work with the family. Uh, Taking children into care is always a last resort. And the parents did try, in fairness, to pull the wool over their eyes during these these home visits. Mm. And we we heard that they were eventually taken from the parents a few months after the father admitted medicating them to have them set that night. Again, that was a few months after that evidence. Uh, came, came that was remarkable. He, really one of, remarkable. One, one of the children uh, had a, a medical condition uh, and he took that child's medicine and gave it to the other ones to knock them out, basically. Yes, and and he used to give the strongest dose to um, his daughter because, he said in his words, she was the hardest to knock out. Um, we heard from a neighbour, a neighbour gave evidence during the trial describing the level of noise coming from the house, shouting and screaming and crying constantly. Mm. And this witness gave evidence of the father lining the children up in the garden uh, in the evening time to give them medication and the noise levels would then drop. So that was clearly to to knock them out. Um, Truly remarkable. I mean, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Mm. They they weren't comfortable with hugs. Uh, As you said, they were afraid of rats and spiders. Uh, They had nightmares constantly, woke up screaming, foster parents found them hiding under the stairs they didn't know how to eat uh, or at least they didn't know how to chew properly and vomiting was an issue they were never toilet trained uh, the courts were to- told two of the children had third degree burns because uh, they were out in the sun without sun cream and had to see a burn specialist uh, all sorts of specialists a language therapist a sci- physiotherapist occupational therapist dietitian, eye specialist dentist orthodontist psychotherapist uh, this is uh, the extent of uh, the problems that these children faced as a result of the abuse that uh, they endured at the hands of those who were supposed to care for them uh, more than anybody, their own parents, uh, children who didn't want to play and wanted the alarms on in the house, Frank. Yeah, like I think you've summed it up very nicely there. You know, the list goes on. It's just incredible just, just listening to the amount of professionals that had to get involved to try and right the wrongs of these parents. 
you know, you need a license to get a dog these days. You know, you don't need a license to have a child. And the evidence that the mother gave when she was being interviewed by Gardy, she gave the impression that she never wanted to have children, that she um, she married quite young. She didn't expect to have as many children as, as, as she did, but she certainly wasn't equipped with the skills to take care of them. But again, that was something that the judge remarked on yesterday because in mitigation at their sentence hearing sometime so a few months uh, ago, the judge was told that they did have um, very low IQ, intellectual uh, difficulties is how it was. Uh, uh, described, but the judge didn't accept that to the extent that you know that they knew he he was satisfied that they knew that what they were doing was wrong, the neglect, and obviously you know the sexual abuse that took place in the house. He was satisfied they knew that what they were doing was wrong, and um, especially because they tried to hide the level of neglect and clearly the abuse when social workers were called to the house, and social workers did try very hard to help them, you know, to mm. help them look after their kids. We heard of care packages being brought to the house that were left unopened. Um, you know, the, the parents would make some attempt to clean the house mm. uh, during scheduled uh, visits. But even at that, the house was still absolutely filthy, filthy mm. when they called and over. That's, with and that's before you talk rubbish. about the sexual abuse, uh, which uh, suffice to say it was at the highest end of uh, the scale. Uh, but when it comes to the neglect uh, and you couple it with that and how one of uh, the foster parents spoke about being able to see through the child's skin or practically so because they were yeah. so thin, uh, it must have been uh, beyond uh, words. Frank, we have to leave it there for the moment, but thank you as always uh, for that. That's our course correspondent, Frank Graney. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you probably know at this stage, Neffet is due to meet tomorrow and make its recommendations to government on the current set of restrictions. It's hoped that those restrictions could be lifted as soon as next week. There may even be an announcement from government on Friday. Let's speak to Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health, David Cullinan, and a very good morning to you and thanks indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme this morning. I suppose what goes up must come down again but I'm not sure anybody expected Omicron to come down at the same rate that it went up. Are you surprised uh, at uh, the trajectory of uh, this current variant? Well good morning first of all and uh, a very happy new year to you Michael. And to you as well David, yes. Uh, Yes uh, I I am somewhat surprised but but obviously pleased and uh, I think if you look at the trend over the last number of weeks with very, very high cases at the end of December and the first week in January, it seems to be coming down. But I suppose what's more important, um, what I have been watching and, and public health experts have been watching over the last while is hospitalizations and not just the numbers of people who might contract COVID in hospital or who might be in hospital with COVID, but people in ICU. And if you go back to the uh, briefings that were given by the chief medical officer and method before Christmas, I think it was the last week in December, uh, to opposition spokespersons, but also the briefing to cabinet and the cabinet subcommittee, the most optimistic projections that they had for people in ICU was somewhere between 150 and 200. And the more pessimistic was somewhere between 400 and 500. So even the best case scenario of 150 Uh, we've fallen far short of that, which shows that that is very, very good news. And I think that does give us uh, real uh, cause for optimism. Uh, And obviously what people want when we can and in a safe way for restrictions to be eased. And I've always said that restrictions should be in place when they are necessary, but should be removed if they are not necessary. They should only remain in place if there's a strong public health rationale for them. So if there is to be 
an early reversal of these restrictions and you know there's still commentary and speculation around it so we'll have to wait and see Mm. what the cabinet actually decides but if there is flexibility and the possibility of more rapid reversal of restrictions i think that should be done because i think we've had a very very difficult challenging two years this has had a huge impact on businesses on ordinary people on people's freedoms on mental health uh, and the quicker that we can ease restrictions the better obviously we have to do it safely Obviously, it has to be in the context of public health advice. Mm. Uh, but I think we also have to have an eye to the reality of where the variant is and where the disease is. And I think we're in a very, very strong position to be able to ease restrictions. I take it you don't want to be specific just yet about what restrictions to lift and when uh, until you hear from NEFID and see what their advice is anyway. Well, listen, obviously, NEFID will give advice. But I think the areas that we need to look at are obviously hospitality. Uh, and then outdoor events, so sporting events. And I heard at the top of your programme reference to uh, either GA matches or rugby matches, uh, concerts, uh, all of those outdoor events. And especially as we move into the summer months in, in May and uh, uh, June, July, I think there will be an expectation that we will have, again, full outdoor concerts. I think that's the territory that we need to be moving in. But obviously well before that, and you know, the, the Tornista has speculated that the 31st of March maybe the day when uh, most, if not all, of the restrictions would be lifted. And we've had a number of false dawns before, which is not the fault, I have to say, of any politicians. So I'm not landing that on, on, mm. on the, at the seat of government. It's because you can never predict where this disease will go, new variants. But I think this particular strain that has obviously been uh, a weaker strain and has uh, resulted in less hospitalizations, thankfully less deaths, uh, and certainly less people in ICU, is uh, something that has put us in a strong position. And and also, I have to say, the huge uptake of the vaccine. And I have to say, people's response to COVID generally over the last two years, where most people have done what they can most of the time and have done, you know, the heavy lifting in terms of abiding by public health restrictions, getting vaccinated, getting their booster jab, has all put us in the strong position that we're in. So, yeah, I think specifically hospitality is one of the areas and then sporting events and outdoor activities are the areas I would like to see rapid movement on if it's possible and I think it is and I'm hopeful that that's what we will see over the next uh, few days and weeks. Yeah well we've been there before as you say um, which would have been the case on the 22nd of October uh, when we thought we were going to lift all of uh, the restrictions uh, but we went completely backwards and into the worst phase of uh, the pandemic, uh, there's always going to be these unknowns because of variants. There is, and I think what we need to work out, and uh, you know, I, I have sought a meeting with Method and also with the Minister for Health on, on this as well. I think we need to work out what living with COVID will mean, not just over the next number of weeks or months, but over the next number of years. Mm. So are we moving from a pandemic to uh, an epidemic. What does that mean? Uh, is it the case that COVID will be with us in cycles every year and we will continue to get waves but maybe less severe? All of that is still unknown but there is some information out there that would certainly point to uh, that we are going to have COVID like we have the flu with us for a long time which means we then have to look at in that scenario what does testing look like? What does contact tracing look like? How do we scale it down but still keep it sufficiently in place to be able to deal with the waves when they come. The same with vaccines. Are we looking at annual vaccines or uh, maybe two vaccines a year? We don't know. And I think all of that needs to be worked out. So I think there is going to be a need 
to maintain uh, a lot of the architecture that was put in place in relation to public health, be it mm. testing, tracing and vaccination. And it would be prudent for us to be having those conversations and to start planning all of that now. Mm. But I think what people will want and, you know, people will accept all of that as necessary so long as there is then a reversal of restrictions that allows people to live their lives again. And I think we we have no choice but to do that. You know, we, we can't continue to stay locked up forever. Uh, of course, we have to put in place mitigating measures to keep people safe and to avoid overcrowding in hospitals. But at the same time, restrictions are always and have to be seen as a last resort. All right. Uh, well, you know, they're, they're really difficult. So the quicker we can reverse them, the better. And my sense of it is, Michael, you know, I'm I'm optimistic in relation to it. I think it will happen and I'm very pleased that it will happen because I know how difficult and tough it has been for people. Yeah, um, I think the best hope really in the very long term, because uh, I think the short term looks very optimistic. Uh, we have plenty of reason to be hopeful uh, over the course of the next week or two or month or two as the case may be. But in the long term, to stop uh, the virus from mutating uh, and creating these new variants, uh, the best solution seems to be to vaccinate the world somehow. Yes, and the World Health Organization obviously have uh, made their feelings known on all of that. I'm, I'm very taken uh, by what the World Health Organization has said in relation to inequality generally, both within states, even in the developed world, and also the developing world as well, where inequality in terms of uh, access to vaccines, but also the different forms of health care, uh, and also economic issues as well that can be a driver of a pandemic if, if people don't have access to proper medicines, proper uh, supports, uh, all of that can lead to really, really difficult situations for families. And let's be honest, we've had it here as well. COVID has been really, really difficult economically for many businesses. It's also been very tough on uh, a lot of people who've lost their jobs and lost incomes. And you juxtapose that with an Oxfam report last week, which shows that the wealth of many billionaires actually increased quite dramatically. So there are big lessons to be learned, I think, from this pandemic. And, you know, I hope that parties of the right uh, will have learned some of those lessons in relation to we need to invest in our public systems. We need to have a better healthcare system. We need to be looking at workers' rights, uh, sick leave, all of those issues that became problems uh, during the pandemic. Uh, And we also need them to look at other societal issues as well. Uh, But the wider point of keeping public health infrastructure in place is going to be a really important one because, unfortunately, COVID is not going to disappear. It will still have to be managed. But the hope is we can manage it while uh, living normal or as best we can normal life Mm. by ending restrictions. Which might mean wearing masks and making sure we use sanitizer and keeping our our distance and so on. But we'd be able to go out for a pint or go for a meal or go to a match or go to a concert or do some of those things uh, that have been prohibitive. Yes, exactly. And I, and, I, and I hope that's how it will work out. And I suspect that it will. So I, I, I think we will see changes in hospitality. You know, people uh, do want to be able to socialise and live their lives. And, and I think if you treat people like adults, the vast majority of people are sensible and have taken sensible precautions. They didn't need the government at times to tell them what to do. And in fact, the government message, as we know, at times was very confusing and muddled. And people just gone on with it. They they limited their social uh, interactions when they felt it was necessary. But there does come a point in time when you look at the hospitalisations going down and, you know, uh, being well below even the most optimistic projections that Neffet has uh, or had made 
um, I think people reasonably will want to see a, a, a loosening of the restrictions mm. and the mm. ability to live their lives and, and all of those areas you mentioned people want to go and watch a football game a hurling mm. game uh, a rugby game go to a concert uh, young people have really suffered you know uh, older people in nursing homes have really suffered so it's only now as we come out of this that the full reality of what we went through and the impact it had on people yeah. will, will come into sharp focus and, and there's an yeah. awful lot of lessons to be learned. Well, uh, we're all hoping against hope at the moment, it. but at least there's reason for hope, uh, which is a very good situation compared to the one that we've been in over the course of the last two years. Uh, we leave it there for the moment on that optimistic note and thank you indeed for thank joining you. us as thank always. You. That's Sinn Féin spokesperson on health, David Cullinan. Michael Reed on LMFM. County Mead has uh, the fourth lowest number of local authority houses in the state. Uh, Pedro Bean, leader and founder of AIM2, a TD for Mead West, uh, wants that uh, to be changed. He's describing it as a shocking situation and he's on the line with us. Good morning to you, Pedro Tobin, and thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. I suppose, uh, like everything else, you have somebody at the bottom and somebody at the top and there's something in the middle. Uh, what is the real concern about uh, where County Mead falls in, in terms of the number of local authority houses? There's, there's two major issues here, Michael. The first one is the housing crisis, and, and everybody knows at this stage that we are in a housing crisis, but the figures in me are particularly harsh. Uh, 4,000 uh, applicants currently are on the housing waiting list across the, country, uh, across the county. Um, 2,700 of those are currently on housing assistant payments. Um, so the state is paying about 28 million euros to private landlords for those people to be housed uh, at the moment. We know that there's about 160 families who are currently in emergency accommodation. And emergency accommodation is really, really not suitable for families uh, to live on in, in any length of time uh, whatsoever. And we also know that people are actually waiting on the Mead housing waiting list since 2009. So if you're looking for a one-bedroom house or a two-bedroom house, you could be on that waiting list since 2009. 13 years signed up waiting for a house for Mead County Council, which is is unbelievably harsh uh, for anybody who's trying to get on with their lives. Um, I did an audit of the figures that were produced by the National Oversight and Audit Commission just in the last couple of days, just to see what their per capita figure was. So we could contrast uh, Mead's experience with other counties. And Mead is the fourth lowest uh, county in the country with regards to provision of social housing per capita. There are 22 counties that are doing better uh, than us in relation to that. And indeed, counties like Longford, Louth and Waterford have twice the number of local authority homes per capita than Meath. And that, that's startling, uh, and it shows an inequality and an unfairness uh, in the system. Uh, it, it's, you know, not surprising in many ways, even though it's shocking. And I'll tell you the reason why it's not surprising, because over the years, the research I've carried out shows that Meath is actually at the bottom or near the bottom in practically every investment uh, category uh, in the country. So if you look at the, the level of money our local authority gets, it's the lowest in the country per capita. Mead gets about 65, 65% of the average income that local authorities receive from central government in this state. In provision of mental health services, Mead has been the lowest for years. Um, you know, we're, Navan is the largest town in mm. the country okay. without a rail line. Okay. And we have the lowest number of Gardaí per uh, capita in the state 
And obviously, our, our Garda station, our, our headquarters, was moved out of okay, the country. It's very complicated to deal with so many problems, but I understand the point, and but, I think but, the point is being made. You're saying that uh, Mead is uh, the poor neighbour. Uh, but uh, what about demand for local authority houses? How does it compare Mead compared to other counties? Because that is the real way that you do uh, comparison like by like, is it not? Yeah, like the, the, the two points. I'm going to address the first one there. And, and you're right. Mead is a poor relation. And it's wrong. It's absolutely starkly wrong. And the reason it's wrong and the reason it's happening is because we have had Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael ministers in this county to beat the band who haven't represented us in Cabinet to make sure that we get the, the right investment. Mead's population has skyrocketed over the last uh, 15 to 20 years, but investment hasn't kept pace in relation to that. And, and that's the key issue. And in other counties, ministers very, very clearly, they bat for their county. They, they deliver for their county. But in Mead, uh, Minister McEntee, uh, Minister Byrne and Minister Damien English, they don't deliver for our county. Now, I'm not looking for anything more for Mead than any other county. Uh, I'm not yeah. looking for, 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 for better. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, they'll all argue the complete opposite, of course. But, but the figures speak for themselves, Michael, and that's the key question. They can argue until the cows come home. Mm, but there's but long waiting lists in every county. Uh, uh, and what about the waiting times? If you haven't compared to the demand, have you compared the waiting times? We, we are comparing the waiting times uh, at the moment. We're getting those figures okay. uh, from Mead County Council and, 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 and the work that, that we're doing in this is not easy because you I mean, collect a lot of this information. Your, your point in general is correct. I mean, there's obviously a terrible housing problem in the country. There's a, a problem with uh, councils not building houses and there's a long wait for a local authority house, for a council house or accommodation to be provided by the council. That's across the board. Uh, but to say that it's particularly worse in County Mead and that's the fault of individual politicians uh, is pretty hard to stand over at the moment, well, isn't it? It's not, and I'll tell you why, uh, Michael, because very, very clearly, if a population is increasing in the county, investment in key infrastructure has to increase as well. You'd Where is the population not increasing in any county? What well, county? Mead, Mead has exceeded the population increases than most other counties. Actually, Kildare and Meads would mm. have, and, and Fingal is actually considered a local authority area. I know, right. but I remember when there's three million people in the country, there's five million people in the country. There are, but, but what I'm saying, uh, Michael, if anybody wants to just Google populations of counties uh, over the last uh, 10 years, they'll very clearly see the Meads population has increased at a far faster rate uh, than other counties. And indeed, we actually have a, a far younger population because there's far more young families in Meath than there would be on average than, than other counties. Indeed, the average age in Meath is, is, is 30, while the average age in, in Clarny, for example, is, is 40. And there's, there's a, a, a problem with the fact that Meath's investment is not keeping up with its population okay. growth. And as a result, we're all poor uh, in, in terms of services as a result, and we need... Okay, so how much, do, how, how much do you want to spend on it? Uh, uh, well, because, you, I mean, this, uh, one of the solutions you're suggesting is uh, that the council buy derelict and uh, vacant properties, uh, CPO them if necessary. So how much do you spend on that, and how much do you spend on renovating them and bringing them up to a standard uh, that is compatible uh, with uh, the housing standards in this country? Well, so you're right. There's at least 3,000 empty homes currently in County Meath, and given that there's 4,000 people on the housing waiting lists, and that we have 3,000 empty homes in the county, I think that's a, a, a criminal 
offence, to be honest, to allow for dereliction in a time of great need. But and actually, Louth County Council has done really good work with regard to CPOs. Mm. And actually, Louth County Council has been very strategic. What is, a lot of people, unfortunately, not everybody, but a lot of people will sit on derelict sites and derelict homes um, because they're waiting for, for, uh, to sell it in the future or waiting for house prices to increase further, especially developers do that. Mm. So what's happened in Louth... Well, derelicts and empty are, are, are different and Louth has been exemplary and has been praised far and wide uh, for its efforts in that. But if it's derelict, it's derelict. But, uh, but if it's empty, post, you're just, talking about just, something just, else. If I can just finish the mm-hmm. point, one of the strategic things I think that Louth has done that Mead hasn't followed is that it has, it has, CP, it has threatened CPO on developers who are sitting on empty homes on the basis that no, no developer wants that to happen. So when it gets a CPO, it motivates them to actually do something with the house and achieve, um, you know, to make sure that house gets back into the housing market. What we want to see is both a, an increased taxation on empty homes. And I said this to Pascal Donoghue, the Minister for Finance, at the last budget, that we needed to see the local property tax increase radically on empty homes. And in, at the same time, a grant to be provided to help people get those empty homes into use. So, you know, at, once, at one level you have a, a, a stick and the other level you have a carrot mm. to get those homes into use so that some of that 4,000 people who are currently on the waiting list can actually have somewhere to raise their families that's safe and sound and warm and comfortable. And um, it's just incredible that uh, Pascal Donnie said, no, he won't raise taxes on empty homes. His argument was because he said, we don't know why those homes are empty. You know, we are about 10 years into a housing crisis at this moment, and the Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil haven't done the necessary research to find out why those ha- houses are empty. I would say that there's an urgency deficit uh, with regards to Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael in their approach to the housing crisis. And that's why AIM2 are making our focus at, at the moment, you know, focusing on those empty homes, those 3,000 empty homes in Meath, getting them back into use through the twin tools of a tax and a grant to help those in. Mm. And then CPOs can also be used to motivate builders and developers to stop sitting on those houses and sites. Okay, I think what the Minister meant when he said they don't know uh, is that it's not always builders and uh, developers. Uh, It could be empty because somebody's in a a nursing home or the will hasn't been sorted out yet or there's all sorts of reasons. And a a house could be in probate, for example, and you can actually design a local property tax to take that into consideration. Okay, you, you, You could make a tax that would actually allow for those exemptions um, if a person is in a nursing home or if a house is in probate and still allow for the majority of those homes to start to come into use. Um, you know, t- t- tonight I'll be talking in the Dáil in relation to building regulations and right across, you know, Meath we would have had, mm. we have units above shops in towns that are, are completely vacant um, because of the changes of building regulations in, in recent times. And, yeah, and the housing standards. People can't move into them. Uh, and, and we don't want people to move into dangerous yeah. housing standards in, in, in any way. So, but we also need to, to, to recognise that right now in Meath there's 165 families. I know, but a lot, a, lot of those, a lot of those units over shops that you're talking about are, are falling apart. Um, before you some, leave us... Some, just some be- of those. But see, like, Michael, one of the difficulties here is that there's no silver bullet to the housing crisis. Mm. But there's a whole lot of levers that we can, be, we can pull. And mm-hmm. for sure... Out of the, let's say, the, 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 the units above shops around uh, towns and mm. cities in this country, for sure some of them are, are in, in really poor order. But there are many of them that would be able to allow for 
uh, you know, a young couple or even a single individual who, you know, are knocking down my constituency doors to be able to live safely in those homes uh, and actually would breathe. But, but, that, but, but there's standards that have been set by the state uh, and most of the properties that you're talking about would have to have some level of renovation uh, in order to reach those standards. Uh, and when you say that there's 4,000 empty properties, uh, it's not true to say that there's 4,000 empty properties that could be made available to move into in the morning or next week or next month or ever in some circumstances. No, like, first of all, 3,000 empty homes in, 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 in four, okay. Mm-hmm. At, at the mm-hmm. moment. Yeah. Yeah. But the point, the point is, and nothing can be done overnight, but the mm-hmm. point is the government, Fine Gael are in, in power since 2011, and we have a housing crisis that has never been seen uh, before in this country. We have a level of homelessness. There's, there's, there's people, 76 people died on the streets of Dublin in homelessness last year. Now, where's the regulations for those people, Michael? Now, the, 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 the amount of people dying in homelessness on the streets is not even recorded in mm. any other county uh, currently outside of Dublin. And it was only through the work that AIM2 has, has done that actually just this year the government have carried out an investigation into it and are actually going to record the number of deaths that are happening in homelessness in counties outside of Dublin. We need to get real and we need to have a common sense okay. approach in this. And the first thing we need to do is get empty homes into a fit state so people can live in them. Okay, I've gone over time. I have to leave it there, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, that's Peter Tobin, who's a TD for Mead West, uh, the leader and founder of the Ain2 Party. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, the TDs are preparing as uh, we speak uh, for a return to the doll. The doll will sit for the first time this year at two o'clock this afternoon. Let's preview what might take place. Michael Brennan is political editor with uh, the Sunday Business Post. Good morning to you, Michael, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. It's going to be a busy agenda, but one that will be dominated by violence against women. Yeah, that's right. The, the whole country really has has been rocked by by the murder of Ashley Murphy and you know her funeral. The, the the public fallout from it, all of that. I think that's certainly something you're going to see raised. And there's actually a debate in the in the doll later today as well on that issue of violence against women and and what can be done to try and and tackle it in a better way. So. That, that's going to be a big political focus this week. Will we see action, do you think? Uh, because uh, a lot of time will be given to it. Statements on uh, gender-based violence and then a motion from Sinn Féin later in uh, the day in relation to violence against women. Uh, but uh, it's not a, a new problem by any means and terrible uh, tragedies uh, such as uh, the one the Murphy family are experiencing at, at the moment uh, have happened numerous times over in the past. Yeah, you're right. You know, I was just looking at the statistics recently and, you know, even uh, last year, you know, up to around 25,000 incidences of domestic violence where Gardaí were called. You know, those are those are huge numbers. You know, if you were to translate that to some other form of, of crime, you know, you, there, there, there would be huge uh, outcry about it as well. So it's a, it is a deep-rooted uh, problem. There's no question. I think where you're going to see action is probably in this new uh, strategy the government are, have been working on for some time in terms of dealing with domestic and gender-based violence. That is due pretty soon and I think that's where you're going to see a list of different things in, in terms of you know prevention, uh, punishment and education and so on, a kind of multi, multi-faceted strategy there to update the, the previous one which has, has reached its end. 
It's uh, the beginning of a, a political year uh, and we start uh, the year with Micheál Martin as uh, Taoiseach. Uh, the King will live, if you like, uh, for 12 months, uh, most likely. I think that's the expectation uh, as well. Uh, but uh, it could be a, a case of looking over the shoulder because uh, I, I think there'll be a lot of interest in uh, the reversal of the roles between Taoiseach and Tánaiste and the plan for Leo Vratker to take over the helm uh, towards the end of this year. Yeah, that 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 is is going to be the you know dramatic political event uh, that we know of so far uh, this year, and and you know all eyes will be to see what kind of transition we get to it. Um, for now, Mial Martin's actually in quite a strong position. Anyone who saw him on the late late on Friday would have seen. Uh, you know how optimistic he was in general, and when the question was thrown to him about will you be you know leader of Fianna Fáil after you hand over as 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 T, the position of Taoiseach to Leo Radker was absolutely, and you know he's almost bouncing out of the studio. So he's got a bit of a lift at the moment from the fact that the Omicron wave thankfully seems to be subsiding and. All the talk is of easing restrictions, but it's it's going to be obviously a long 12 months with a, a lot to happen in between now and then. OK, uh, and will the next Taoiseach be dealing with coronavirus? In other words, uh, when we get to the end of the year in December, will Leo Fradger be out in the steps of government buildings telling us about restrictions next year, the year after rather? Yeah, I suppose the, the hope is that, 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 that it won't be anything like what we've experienced over the last uh, two years. Uh, my colleague uh, Daniel Murray talked over the weekend to David Navarro from the World Health Organization, and he one of his predictions was hopefully it might, COVID-19, become like the common cold and that society is able to live with it in a, in, a, in a better way and less lethal way than we have been so far. So that that would be a much nicer position for Leo Radker to be in charge of as Taoiseach rather than the, the constant firefighting that Micheál Martin has, has had to deal with, I suppose, while he's been Taoiseach. So what are you expecting in the coming days? Uh, can we expect Micheál Martin to be back on the steps of government buildings on Friday or in the early days of next week with a, a jig in a step this time? Yeah, I, I think that we haven't had too many of those COVID-19 type announcements, but I think this is probably going to be one of those rare ones. Um, a real example is the number of ministers queuing up at the moment to try and get out and bear the, be the bearer of good news. So you've had Micheál Martin himself on Friday in the late, late, talking about how optimistic he was. Leo Radker has been out several times since uh, to say that he thinks you know the end of March could be the time when we're able to move away from almost all restrictions. Jack Chambers, the Minister of State for Sport, has been saying we could have a full crowd back for the Ireland-Wales rugby match in the Aviva. And finally, you've had Eamon Ryan, the Minister for Transport, this morning again making optimistic noises. So it's all pointing in the in in the direction of a you know a fairly substantial easing of restrictions and and the the government is very confident about that okay well uh, simon coveney be coveney be glad uh, to get to the end of today uh, or will questions continue after today uh, about uh, the champagne celebration that was held by his uh, officials when Ireland took the seat on the United Nations Security Council? Yeah, I, I think it, it, that story looked to some extent like it was calming down, but then it's been reignited by the fact that uh, you know Simon Coveney went on 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 radio and didn't reveal that he'd actually commissioned an investigation by his own department into that very unwise. 
you know, a champagne moment by his officials where they celebrated Ireland winning the UN Security Council seat. And that has, has continued on. And now the, the Oireachtas Foreign Affairs Committee is going to call him in whenever his department's report is completed. So he's still in a difficult position, not, not the kind of position Boris Johnson is in, which is a you know, near mortal uh, political peril over across the water. But it's, a, it's, it's still running on and, and an awkward one for him. OK, so the Minister for Education will be in uh, the spotlight in uh, the coming weeks uh, because of uh, the leaving cert and what model uh, should be adopted for this year's set of students, but also because of bullying targets in school, online abuse and gender identity. Yeah, I, I certainly was watching the primetime program last night on on uh, on the, the appalling you know events surrounding a, a young man who, who took his own life and the descriptions his family gave of the bullying experience were just heart wrenching and I think that you know that that has cast a very valuable spotlight onto onto that issue of online bullying which we all know is there and we all know there are there are proposals to bring in an online regulator to try and you know mitigate the problem but but definitely that's something for for normal foley education minister to address and and I think that's that's going to increase the pressure for for more action. Okay, what else would you be watching out for now that the political season is up and running? I mean there's ongoing items obviously such as Brexit or the collapse of power sharings in the north and the implications that that might have for that matter. Yeah, there, there, there's always Brexit and that tricky issue, which we've spoken before many times of resolving the, the Northern Ireland protocol, the row there. Um, it's worth the mention of MICA as well in terms mm. of the legislation to to set up that compensation scheme for people in Donegal, particularly whose homes are crumbling. That's due to be brought through the doll as well fairly quickly. And that will probably provoke more rows and so on. But what will be interesting to see is the extent of it. Do the, the government backbenchers, you know, who've been agitating for this scheme, do they accept what Darrell O'Brien, the housing minister, brings through? Or are there kind of rebellions and people, you know, losing the party whip? That's that's probably going to be the, the one to watch there. OK, Michael, good to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, and indeed, uh, we'll have plenty to talk about uh, when the politicians get back to work in the Dáil Chamber at two o'clock today. Michael Brennan is uh, the political editor of uh, the Sunday Business Post. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the Culture Migrant Centre is based in Navan. It's an organisation that works with migrants, asylum seekers and refugees and focuses on the provision of equal rights and education opportunities. It is one of five organisations that has been uh, announced as awardees of the Engage and Education Fund 21 to 24 which is supported by Mason Hayes and Curran LLP to the tune of 1.2 million euro. It's a lot of money. Let's hear a little bit more about the work that Culture does and the work that it intends to do with this additional funding. Ruben Ham Bakacheri is the integration support worker with Culture Micron Centre and on the line. A very good morning to you, Ruben, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I'm sure this will be very welcome funding for your organisation. Good morning, uh, Michael. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, sure. We're really delighted to be recipients of uh, the Engage and Educate funding for 2021 to right up to 2024. So that's three years of working with migrants that have uh, lost their jobs. As you may know, migrants are one of the most hit-hard groups 
who lost their jobs during the pandemic. And we have seen an increase of people that have come to us uh, more than before are looking for supports on how they can go back into employment after the pandemic. Okay, well, it's a lot of money uh, that uh, you'll have to help you do that work over the next uh, number of years. Uh, Why is it, you say, uh, that migrants were most uh, affected by the pandemic? Okay, so most of, uh, among the vulnerable groups that were named uh, during uh, uh, the pandemic, we find that migrants would have been the ones that are, are faring at the lowest, and then most of migrants will be working in uh, minimum wage jobs, low entry level jobs, and, and they are living conditions, especially for those that have come here as students and they're sharing accommodation. And we know that for those who were living in uh, uh, spaces which are were very squashed or uh, did not have much space, were actually most affected during the pandemic. And that close contact, which when everyone else was ex- exercising the social distancing, it was very hard for people who were in vulnerable situations who could not have the luxury of having big accommodation places where they can actually stay away from each other. Even in terms of self-isolation, you know, when you're living with other people and you're sharing a- a accommodation, it's even hard to self-isolate in those spaces. Mm. So a lot of migrants found themselves at the receiving end during the pandemic. Okay, and you hope to help them recover uh, to get back into employment. Uh, and how will you go about doing that? So our Cultural Migrant Centre takes a, a, an integration from day one approach in doing our work. So we support migrants that have come in here uh, in different ways. Some have arrived uh, uh, with their full rights as EU citizens and some have arrived through the international protection system, which is asylum seekers and refugees. So we offer tailored support programs that enable people to get the support that they need. So we identify the need. We carry out needs assessment with the people that we work with and then building on the work that we've uh, we've been doing and also the the established relationships and uh, we have uh, have, uh, developed with migrants uh, has helped us to support and identify the needs that uh, uh, people who have lost their jobs or who are looking to retain employment uh, but progress in the jobs, like I'd said earlier on, that migrants would find themselves at low entry jobs. But this uh, funding that we have received now, we are also looking at professional courses that migrants can progress to so that they can actually find themselves in professional roles rather than just seeing migrants as people who are doing uh, the low-skilled jobs, but also mm. being, seeing migrants in their professional roles. And I, I take it uh, that many of uh, the people that you're talking about are qualified uh, to carry out that work uh, and would have uh, gone into those kind of professional roles in their home countries, but that in some circumstances their qualifications aren't recognised here. That's true. That's very true, Michael. So a lot of people have come here. So the, the just the, the lack of uh, recognition of for, uh, foreign qualifications is actually a problem, not only for culture, but for the whole nation. We find that people have come here as professionals. And even the, the, the data that is coming from uh, the uh, ERSI shows that a lot of migrants would have come here with a dead level qualification, but that's not recognized. So people to address the economic quest, uh, seek employment at minimum level, and then go back to college and study and then get an Irish qualification and then progress to to, to a, a professional role, but they could have actually done that right from the time they arrived. Okay, well, uh, this will give you uh, the opportunity uh, to buy the tools, if not the tools themselves, uh, to continue the good work uh, that you're doing. Uh, how many people do you work with, Ruben? Uh, so uh, over, over the last uh, year, in our own uh, annual report, we worked with we had, we had an impact of 4,200 people. Wow. So for this project, we are looking at working at 
up to 180 people over the three years. So that's 60 people a year that will be supported. So this is a follow-up project. Actually, in 2019, 2020, we received some money again from uh, Rethink, and we supported up to 160 migrants. And we had a lot of people on the waiting list because uh, uh, the, the funding was exhausted. So we got another chance to apply for another funding, and we got more money. So we we, we, we are overwhelmed by uh, the number of people that are, are coming through. So some people listening to this might be asking, why don't you go through the employment services that are already there? But uh, I think it's our approach, the integration from day one, and also looking at the needs and that uh, intercultural approach that we use with our work to identify the needs of people that have arrived in Ireland. Without an education in Ireland, we've come from different cultures and helping them with the, uh, the accessing employment etiquettes, which are different from the countries that they've come from. Okay, well, congratulations to you on this award and continued success with uh, the work that you do there in culture. And thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Ruben, Ruben Ham Bakacheri is uh, the integration support worker with the Culture Migrant Centre. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming uh, to us uh, today. Uh, Jerry in Clongill says, uh, Patter Tobin seems to know what he's talking about, uh, what's needed in terms of getting some housing available for people. Hopefully the government will uh, listen to that. And he also wants uh, the North-South Interconnector to be built and completed soon because he says that uh, the electricity in Gibstown uh, is dreadful. Thanks uh, for that. Uh, Tony in County Louth says on the matter of the horrific abuse of those children by their parents. Uh, Tony says, I I know there's a policy in this country never to blame anyone directly, mostly for fear of legal action. But there comes a time when questions have to be asked about how those unfortunate children got to that stage and endured years of what can only be called torture without action being taken. If this service has not sufficient powers or ground staff are not supported by its senior people, then that also has to be questioned and rectified because if things were even half as bad as your reporter described, even one visit to that house should have resulted in action. Uh, where was uh, the school attendance in all of this? And uh, if that uh, didn't raise questions, what would have? It's hard to believe in this day and age that this kind of thing can still happen. It really is, Tony. Thank you indeed uh, for your text. Tom says, Michael, you said uh, there about COVID uh, that it looks good in uh, the short term. The long term is a different thing. My dad died this year, last year, this day last year from COVID. We need to manage it, but not be complacent. Thanks, Tom. Uh, I certainly uh, agree with that. Uh, but it looks a lot brighter than it, it did, uh, let's say, a few weeks ago, Tom. Uh, somebody else in touch uh, saying, why would I be surprised uh, that this new COVID virus variant would decline quickly? Did South Africa not highlight this before we realised that it was in Ireland? South Africa did highlight this, our caller says. The vaccine have not as much effect on this new variant of COVID. Uh, the Omicron is just like a, a bad cold to healthy people. My partner is getting her fourth vaccine. It makes you wonder. Thanks uh, for that. I think it's like a bad cold to people who have been vaccinated. Uh, somebody else says uh, when it comes uh, to the abuse of uh, those children, the sentence is 15 years for the three men, nine years for the mother, three years for the aunt. Very low sentences for crimes like that. Judges would want to live in a real world, says 
as our caller. Thank you if you have been in touch. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.